This is episode 411 with Dr. Sandeep Gupta. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl and Open Wide. And I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week, I'll be getting up close and personal with thought leaders from around the globe, as well as your weekly dose of motivation so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best version of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? Guess what, my beautiful friend? My fourth book, Comparisonitis, How to Stop Comparing Yourself to Others and Be Genuinely Happy is out right now. Number one, New York Times bestselling author and social media sensation Jay Shetty said, never before has a book been more needed. Future generations will thank Melissa for shining a spotlight on comparisonitis. And multiple New York Times bestselling author Gabby Bernstein said, since Melissa refers to people who have recovered from comparisonitis as unicorns, I suppose that makes this a sort of unicorn training manual. I'm so grateful that such a manual has arrived. It's been infinitely helpful to me. Head to comparisonitis.com or Amazon to get your copy today. Welcome back to another episode of the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your guest host, Nick Broadhurst. I am Melissa Ambrosini's husband, taking over while Melissa is on maternity leave. And today is a very, very personal topic for me, and that is mold. Now, mold for me had a huge, huge impact on my life, but it took me years, literally years, maybe six or seven years, to see this missing piece in my health puzzle. And it all started for me back in 2008 when I renovated a 120-year-old home and I got exposure to incredibly toxic black mould, which started for me the most, you could call it horrific, but quite the journey. But I am where I am and I'm grateful for it. I wouldn't change a thing. That said, I don't want other people to suffer unnecessarily when this information is available. Dr. Gupta graduated from medical school at the University of Queensland in 1999. And since then, he has served in a range of public and private hospitals in the southeast Queensland region as a cardiology, medical and anaesthetic registrar. He also has five years of experience working in intensive care, particularly in the area of post-cardiac surgery care. Dr. Gupta then went on to invest many years training in integrative medicine and was awarded a fellowship in the Australasian College of Nutritional and Environmental Medicine in 2008, and a fellowship of the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners in 2010. He also has physician training certification with Dr. Richie Shoemaker in chronic inflammatory illness, and a master's of nutrition with Dr. Gabriel Cousins, who has also been on the show. Sandeep established the Lotus Institute of Holistic Health in 2017 to provide training in integrative medicine for those who seek it. And as you'll find out from this episode, Sandy is a really beautiful soul. And what struck me with him was how much he cares. He's got a beautiful blend of caring so much for his patients, but at the same time being an absolute expert in his field and approaching it in a very, very holistic fashion. So if you've been curious about mold, mold in your home, mold in your body, if you just want to know more about it, if you've got any sort of mystery illness, this is the episode for you with Dr. Sandeep Gupta. Sandeep Gupta, welcome to the show. 
Thanks very much, Nick. It's good to be here and to have the opportunity to chat with you in further depth. Yeah, I'm really, really excited about this conversation. But before we get into that, the most important question of the day is, what did you have for breakfast this morning? I had a juice of carrot and apple followed by some tofu. <laughs> That's an interesting combo. <laughs> yeah. That was, it was just a random, random Friday morning breakfast <laughs> and just making it up at the time. But actually, one thing I've been doing is having a uh, vegetable juice every morning for the last two and a half weeks. And I definitely noticed the difference. I've got to tell you, we've been doing the same thing for six months now. Mm-hmm. Now, my love for juicing came from doing a 30-day juice fast, which was rather interesting. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's pretty long. <laughs> it was long. And I had to uh, stop before Bambi was born. Okay. But what we've done is carried on from that by having our morning juice. And we have probably six or 700 milliliters each or something like that. Mainly green, sometimes a bit of apple, a bit of carrot. And we absolutely love it. You know, it's like you're just drinking biophotons, right? You're drinking life force energy. Exactly. It's like having an IV nutrient infusion every morning, but with the life force energy to go with it. Would you say that juicing, just having one juice a day in the morning, empty stomach, would be possibly one of the greatest hacks for your health because you're getting so much goodness in? I think so, yeah. I think just for the average person, you know, if you're having, let's say, a, a diet which is pretty low in vegetables, maybe there's a bit of sugar in there and some other junky foods, I think just bringing in a vegetable juice will just allow you to have that feeling of what it feels like to just get a massive infusion just of live foods. And I think it gives you that inspiration to then start changing your diet more comprehensively, I suppose. Yeah, it's interesting. When <laughs> when I make certain juices for Melissa and she starts drinking it, her eyes just go like massive and round. And she just kind of like, you can just see something switches on inside of her. And I just love watching it because it's like this huge shot of something. So I know people love specifics. So I'm going to tell them exactly what I put in it because I know we'll get asked. So let's <laughs> I'm going to quickly tell people yeah. what we do in our juice. So this morning, uh, one of our favorites is fennel. We love juicing fennel. So if you put fennel as like one of your bases, it's got a little bit of sweetness to it. We do a bit of apple. We always do lemon. We always do ginger. And then from there, it's kind of like, are we doing a carrot day with some greens? Are we doing some, you know, a kale day or something like that? But we use that sort of like a base and then just sort of throw in whatever we feel like. And like this morning, I actually did about three bunches of bok choy with just one apple and wow. some ginger. And it was like, it was intense. That would have been a bit bitter. <laughs> yeah. But hey, the bitter is the medicine, right? Yeah. Exactly. It's a, it's a big taste that's missing from our Western diet. Mm. And uh, when you first add it in, it can, can be a bit of a shock to the system, but it really balances things out. You know, we've, we've had a real bias towards going to sweet foods. And when you bring the bitter in, I think, yeah, it does really get the gut going a lot better. And it brings in certain elements that are missing in our diet, which are extremely important. I think it's safe to say most people don't get enough herbs in their diet. And I think juicing is great because we always do parsley, mint, and coriander, like huge amounts in, in each one. And what you get from that, those strong flavors, again, those strong flavors are the medicine, right? Yes, absolutely. And the herbs have, have a lot of very strong medicinal properties. The coriander, of course, is good for heavy metal detox. Parsley is great for the kidneys. So there's a whole wide array of medicinal properties that you get through herbs. And just having a, a strong herbal component in your diet you know, really helps, I think, to develop a, a degree of resilience to your body. Now, I know this is not a, an episode about juicing, but we will be talking a bit about that in some respect because we are going to be talking about the importance of living foods in relation to mold. Now, 
you and I have both been heavily affected by mold. And I heard a podcast. This is how I came across you. And I think I told you when I came to see you, I came across a podcast. What was the doctor's name again? Do you remember? Uh, Dr. Neil Nathan. Thank you. Neil Nathan. And I thought, wow, this guy knows what he's talking about. So I reached out to him and he said, you should work with Sandeep Gupta. And it just happened that you were half an hour down the road from me. So (laughs) that was pretty convenient. But that's how I came across your work. And then when we met, you told me about your mold story. Can you share how this all came to be for you to become such a specialist in this space? Yeah, it's actually something I never planned. And I can't say I had any particular interest in it before the universe decided to give me a lesson in this particular area. And so it was 2012. And there was some pretty big floods around that year. And at the time, me and my partner at the time were renting a place in Budrum, which unbeknownst to us had some major structural issues. And one of those, which is one thing that's worth being aware of, is that the lower level of that house was actually quite far below ground level. And so as a result of that, water just flows right in the, <laughs> right into the basement level. And there wasn't sufficient irrigation to, in the place to deal with that. And so when those floods occurred, and it just rained and rained and rained for, for 10 days or more, as far as I remember, and basically water just started running into the house and into the garage. All our possessions there started getting wet, and we didn't know what to do about it. So really, we started seeing visible mold growth in in the house. And we had to start dealing with our possessions, pulling them all out, trying to dry them out. And we had no experience at the time. And my partner started becoming very unwell and actually became bed bound. And, you know, I was really worried. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know how that could be explained. And so I started furiously researching this idea of mold-causing illness. And also a patient at the time mentioned a doctor called Richie Shoemaker to me, who was doing a physician training in mold-related illness. And so I looked him up and I just basically signed up straight away to his physician training and took me quite a while before I was actually able to get in touch with him face-to-face. But he decided that the only time I could consult him was 1am in the morning every month. So it was definitely a labor of love learning this whole area. And it was it was a really steep learning curve. You know, I really didn't know what he was talking about when we started off with all the different terminology he was using and so on. But I, I just decided, you know, this is something I've got to learn. You know, it was a family member who was in problems, uh, having problems on, on that level, and I needed that information to be able to just assist them. And therefore, I just learned. And I was very surprised how many people then reached out to me with regard to this, regard to the fact that they were interested in this area. They, they were looking into the role of mold with regard to their chronic fatiguing illness and they wanted to get assessed for it. It was literally hundreds of people. So overnight, really, as soon as I was certified in this, my practice you know, really flipped and started becoming predominantly a, a biotoxin-related illness practice. So all out of my control, you could say, and by divine design, perhaps. And how about you? Did you find that it affected you? I did. It was quite subtle. But it's just little things like just not being able to get up in the morning and be as fresh mentally as I would like. And just that subtle sign that you're just not running on all four cylinders. And that was definitely the case. That leads into a question about why does mold affect some people more than others? And I think before you answer that, I just want to share my story because... (laughs) unfortunately, I didn't want to become very familiar with mold either, but I became very familiar with it. Now, for me, I was back in 2008, I was renovating a home in Darling Point in Sydney that was built in 1890. And there was water running in the walls, right? And one of the rooms at the front of the property had 
you walk in and you can just smell it, right? You just smell it straight up. And I didn't, at that time, 2008, mold, it wasn't really on the radar, really. You know, like Bulletproof didn't exist and we didn't have all this information coming out on podcasts and it just wasn't available. So I just thought mold was a bit of a bad smell, really. And so I proceeded to helping the builder out, get in there and rip things out. And I breathed in a, a truckload of black toxic mold. And, you know, I was okay for a while and we finished renovating and we moved in. And around that sort of time, my relationship started to become problematic. Um, marriage was under a lot of stress. And I had this combination of mold exposure, financial stress, and emotional stress. And one night I was, I remember it so clearly, I was sitting on the couch watching TV and I had this headache that had been there for like three days. And I never used to get headaches and I'm not one to take painkillers. And about 10 o'clock at night, I called my mum and I said, Mama, I think there's something wrong with me. I don't know what's going on. And she said, well, I'll leave my phone on, you know, just call me if there's any problems. Midnight comes around and I call a taxi. My wife at the time couldn't take me because my son had asthma, which came on around that time as well. And I somehow got myself to hospital. I was in the waiting room for two hours and they thought I was a junkie because it was a part of Sydney where there's a lot of addicts. I was wearing Ugg boots and Adidas track pants and, you know, I look kind of like dressed like that. And I was in there in extreme, extreme pain. I thought I was going to die. And I actually woke up in intensive care. So I'd passed out in the waiting room, woke up in intensive care with 20 doctors around me in the most extraordinary pain. They thought I'd had brain hemorrhage. It turned out to be viral meningitis. And that for me started this journey, basically bedridden for three years. But in that process, no one ever, ever spoke to me about mold, right? Ever spoke to me about it. And it wasn't until years later I pieced together the mold was what essentially compromised my immune system, allowed that virus to take over. And it's been a long journey. Like it's been a freaking long journey. And, and you and I both know that I still test pretty high for mold. Maybe not now, I don't know. But when we worked together, I was testing high. So it's very, very near and dear to my heart because I know how bad it can be. And I really feel for people who have been exposed to it and suffer from it. So I just wanted to share that because it's important people know how bad this can get. Now, in America, it's taken way more seriously. If you rent a property out to someone and it's found to have mold, you can get in serious trouble. Why is it in Australia? It's just not taken seriously. There's very few experts that can come and see your property and, and diagnose things. What's going on here that people aren't taking it seriously? Well, I think it simply hasn't been accepted as a medical condition in the mainstream sense and the belief system. How is that possible? Well, I, I don't know if it, it just hadn't been. We can go into all sorts of discussions about the direction of medical research and what the reason is that it's gone in certain ways. But the main direction has been towards creating illness complexes and creating medical treatments, you know, medication-based treatments or surgical treatments to address those. And so far, looking at environmental causes hasn't really been a major focus. And so what you don't look for, you don't find. You know, there's one little story that gets told. I think it's a Sufi story or something that, you know, someone was, was outside one day looking for something and another person came up to him and said, what are you looking for? And he said, oh, I've lost my keys. And he said, okay, well, where did you lose them? And he said, well, way over there, you know, several meters the other way. And, and then that man said, well, why are you looking here then? He said, well, it's dark over there and it's light here. 
<laughs> it's kind of those kind of interesting and analogies. And I think, you know, one of the things about that is it's like, you know, if you're looking in the wrong place, even though that's the popular place to look or whatever it might be, you'll never find you'll never find the causes of things if you're just looking in the wrong forest, so to speak. You've got to, before you start cutting down trees, you've got to make sure you're in the right forest. So anyway, that's kind of a, a little bit of a, a philosophical bent on it. I think I think it's really just been that the direction of medical science hasn't been looking at environmental causes until recently. Mm. In your experience, in your practice, I mean, obviously a lot of people come to you for mold-related illness. How many different types of conditions do you come across where they've been told it's one thing, but it's actually mold-related. I mean, can you name some conditions where they are related? Yeah, sure. So a really common thing would be someone has chronic fatigue syndrome or fibromyalgia, and they've been given those diagnoses, and nobody's ever really raised the possibility of mold. And, And so often if you then go and take a history on these people and you start asking the right questions, like let's say, like, okay, I got unwell in 2011. Well, where were you living in 2011? Were there any musty smells or leaks? And quite often it'll be a little bit of an aha moment right then when you just ask that. And they're just, hang on, actually, you're right. I did, you know, move in somewhere around then. And so just asking the right questions all of a sudden can open up huge clues that have never been opened up before. So that, that would be one category. People have something like a fibromyalgia or a chronic fatigue syndrome where they've just got a lot of fatigue and they may have a lot of muscle or joint pains and various other symptoms, like they may get worse after exertion, they may have trouble sleeping, but it's, you know, it's basically a multi-system illness. So that's one category. Now, another category would be where it's more localized. Let's say they've got chronic sinus problems. And that's more what we're talking about there is not a whole body inflammatory process so much, but this is more where you've actually got mold growing in a certain area of the body. And so, you know, one study showed that that chronic sinusitis, a very large proportion of them are actually fungal in origin. The problem is the fungus is often quite hard to grow on the traditional testing. So it may not get identified, but often you find that people with these chronic sinus problems, you then go and identify that there has been some mold growth in their house and put them on appropriately antifungal treatment once you've diagnosed it and they often get better. So that would be another really important one. And the third group I would talk about is is just random allergies. People have got allergic type symptoms. It might be more like a, a runny nose or a hay fever type presentation, or it might be hives, or it could be, you know, there can be a host of different things which are related to allergy. And in the mix there is is a lot of mold exposure. And, and really that hasn't been identified as yet as being a major allergic trigger. So those are kind of three different types. So the first is a whole body inflammation process. The second one is more of a fungal infection. And the third one is more of an allergic reaction. And so what about, um, because I fit into the first box beautifully, I was Mr. Chronic Fatigue, Mr. Fibromyalgia, and told by a lot of doctors it was in my head. That was at the time because I actually ended up, I couldn't work. I had family to support. And I ended up having to claim insurance and go on income protection. Luckily, I had income protection. And they kept sending me to doctors and the doctors kept telling me that it was in my head, which is like... That is the worst thing to be told when you are so ill, right? Like, I'm just making it up because I want to suffer. No, like, generally, there's something wrong here. But again, no one no one ever mentioned mold. And with sinuses, it's interesting. I came across an uh, interview recently with Dr. John Lawrence. I don't know if you're not familiar with him, but... No, I, have, no, I don't know. He's a company in the States called MitoZen, M-I-T-O-Z-E-N. And 
he's got various products which help deal with mold. And, and one of those, one, one of the main protocols is cleaning up the sinuses, which has something to do with Marcons. Now, Marcons, M-A-R-C-O-N-S, I don't understand that. Do you know what that is? That's multiply antibiotic resistant coagulase negative stuff. That's Richie Shoemaker's acronym there. But before I go on to that, I just wanted to touch on what you said before that, which I don't want to lose, Mm. which was the piece around being told that the whole illness is in in your head and how that really, I mean, that really devalidates you, if you like, as a human being. And I think one of the reasons that that happens so often is that a medical education doesn't really include a lot of training in what we call multi-system illnesses. And generally speaking, there's a few little things that people, uh, doctors will test for, like autoimmune illnesses and connective tissue diseases, and they'll generally run off some blood tests. And when they come back normal, the general habit is then to go into the psychiatric bucket because it's almost like the thought process is, oh, something can't be that widespread. It must just be in your head. Mm. unless it's a major, major connective tissue or autoimmune condition. And I think that's a major problem with medical education, which we're hoping to rectify here in Australia by introducing CIRS more into the medical education, which luckily is happening. I believe will eventually happen as, as a result of a, a big parliamentary inquiry that happened a few years ago. Now, CIRS, you, you're talking about chronic inflammatory response syndrome. Oh, yes. Thank you. Yeah. Can you explain what that is? So that's a term that was coined by Dr. Richie Shoemaker and his research team. And really, it was a more precise term to refer to chronic inflammation due to biotoxins such as mold. But it can also be biotoxins that you get from an infected body of water or through a tick bite or through random other causes. You know, it's now being talked about that long haul COVID may be a type of CIRS as well. And so really what we're talking about is a multi-system illness, so it's not just localized to one part of the body, that occurs in response to exposure to biotoxins, so it can be from various sources, as I said, that in a vulnerable person or a genetically susceptible individual leads to a whole body inflammatory response. And, And that inflammatory response really could be called a chaotic whole body attempt to rid the body of those biotoxins. However, that never really works. And instead, that becomes the illness itself, the body's immune response, because it's not able to be a, an effective and targeted immune response. It ends up just being this scattergun whole body inflammation. So when we were doing some work together, we were using different things at the time. But there was one which I still take today, which is reishi mushroom. And now, obviously, it's interesting because reishi being a type of fungus as a mushroom, being effective in treating mold-related illness. What's the process behind that? How does that actually work? Why is that effective? Yeah, medicinal mushrooms are very, very interesting, actually. And, and there's some researchers like Paul Stamets who have, who have published a lot on this. They contain a whole bunch of compounds, and the main ones are called glucans, such as beta-glucan is well known, I think, for treating respiratory illnesses and so on. But glucans really help your immune system to ramp up if it's down. And if it's overstimulated, like in autoimmune illness, it helps them to come down. And so there's, there's glucans, there's polysaccharides in there, and those compounds tend to be quite synergistic. And so I came across some research a few years ago, which talks about reishi mushroom as being quite antifungal. And that appears to be the case uh, when I've been using it in practice. It appears that people, when they've got fungal infection, reishi mushroom will greatly help. And if it's really bad, I'll often use that in combination with pharmaceutical antifungals. Mm. So if it's 
regulating the immune system, wouldn't it make sense that everyone would just have reishi mushroom in their daily diet somehow? Yeah, I think I think medicinal mushrooms are, are good for almost everyone, just to tone your immune system and act as an adaptogen. So reishi is really good. There's the shaga mushroom, Coriolis, Hoshu Wu. There's a whole range of them that can be quite useful, just as a long-term tonic for your immune system. But you know, in an acute sense, you can use much higher doses for a fungal infection when you're uh, using reishi mushroom. But it's interesting to see that there are many antifungal compounds in nature. You know, reishi mushrooms are really important one. Olive leaf is really good, I find. And there's a range of other natural compounds that you can use for fungal infections if that's part of your problem. Now, if you're following a really healthy diet and you're finding that you're just not proving, you're just still unwell, this is definitely one of the things to start looking at because that's that's one of the big things about mold. And I think we talked about that when you were here is that you can basically be on the, the healthiest diet out there, but if you're getting exposed to mold on an ongoing basis, let's say your house is absolutely full of mold, in nine out of 10 cases, you know, you'll you often find that you're just not going to be, you're not going to be able to recover despite the best diet and lifestyle you can find. So it's just, it's something that's really important to think about, especially if you find that just doing all the right things in terms of diet and lifestyle are not getting you where you need to go. And in some cases, just bringing in some medicinal mushrooms and then, you know, and addressing the house. And, and using some binder supplements is also going to be very important in terms of dealing with that situation. So binders such as activated charcoal? Yeah, activated charcoal, bentonite clay, zeolite. There's a whole range of them. Even psyllium husks to a degree are a binder. All of these, they really have the ability to sit in the, in the gut, in the gastrointestinal tract, and latch onto any toxins that may come into the gut. And therefore, they can be extremely helpful when you've got a lot of mold toxins in your system or heavy metals or whatever it might be. There are also some some pharmacological ones like cholestyramine, which can be used in quite severe cases. However, the key is you've got to get away from the source of the mold. So it's like, you know, the old analogy, if you're, if you're in a boat that's leaking and you're pailing water out of there, that's only going to go so far if the, if the boat's still leaking. <laughs> There's every chance you're still going to drown. However, if you seal up the leak and you're sure that that boat's not leaking anymore, then by all means, pailing the water out of that boat is going to be very helpful at that point. So that's my analogy for using your binders and dealing with the mold. Dealing with the, the mold in your living environment is sealing the leak. And once you've got that leak sorted, then pailing that all out by the use of of binder supplements or medications and other detox supplements and so on can be very, very useful. But none of it works well if you're still being exposed in your place of, of work or in your home or even in your motor vehicle. Well, motor vehicle, I haven't thought of that. Yeah, wow. So it's interesting because I don't know whether this has happened since being exposed or whether I've always had this, but I just have a nose for mold, man. Like I can, I can smell this stuff when no one can smell anything. And I can walk into a place and just be like, whoa, I'm out of here, ciao, because I can just get it straight away. Or even just walking sometimes down the street, you might walk past a moldy patch of soil or something. It just hits me in the face like a ton of bricks. What can someone do in their house if they suspect there could be an issue? Are there tests that they can buy to test themselves? Like, What's the process here for you know not guessing but actually diagnosing their house properly? Yeah, there are definitely tests. However, the first thing I'd recommend is just to use your own senses very intelligently. And so what I mean by that is just have a really good look around and firstly, see if you can notice any smells. 
any musty smells or any ammonia-like smells. Smells are going to be one of the first uh, signs that something is wrong. And the other thing is just looking for visible mold. Now, the most likely areas you're going to see that would be in the bathroom and the shower area. Now, that's not necessarily a problem. That could just be due to the moisture in that local area from the shower. But if you're seeing it in the window sills and you're seeing it in the other areas of the house, like just in the in the general railings and so on, then that, that's, that already is a strong sign that there is some mold-related problems in your house. So those are two things. And then if, if there's any signs of leaks anywhere in the house, that's often going to be a, uh, another sign that there's going to be mold problems somewhere. And, and a big thing to know is that often mold is not visible. Often it's inside the wall cavities and not visible with the naked eye. And so just because you don't see any, that doesn't mean that it's not there hiding. But if you start with those sort of things, that's a really good start. Then if you're still suspecting it, Generally, we recommend doing something called an ERMI test. That's spelled E-R-M-I. And that stands for Environmental Relative Moldiness Index. Funny name. It was created by the, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. And it's a, it's a type of PCR test or DNA test for mold. And you basically get something called a Swiffer cloth that the lab provides. And you basically wipe various surfaces looking for presence of, of mold on various surfaces. So that's a really good one to do. The other thing is just getting a building biologist or a good mold inspector to come around and do some testing themselves. And they'll often use air testing, um, which is also okay. The good thing about air testing is you can do many rooms for the same price as an ERMI test. However, there's certain species that won't show up on air testing. And sometimes they'll also do surface sampling like tape lifts as well. But one of the big things about that is you've got to make sure that the mold inspector or building biologist is familiar with people suffering from chronic diseases related to mold. Because if they're not, they'll often be only dealing with it at a cosmetic level. And that's not really going to serve the purpose. You really need someone who understands that even low levels of mold in a building can be quite detrimental to someone who's got a real sensitivity and has chronic illness related to mold. And they need to also have the skills to be able to identify it and deal with it. And so there's certain certifications and so on that mold inspectors may have. And, and I cover this in my online course quite a bit, uh, which we'll probably talk about a little later. But that's one of the big things is knowing which questions to ask if you're deciding to get a mold inspector into your home. Well, hopefully the ERMI PCR test is more accurate than the COVID PCR test, but we won't. Let's not talk about that. <laughs> well, actually, the COVID PCR test is probably okay. The problem is it depends how many cycles you run it at. Right. Yes. Yeah. That's been one of the things that's been looked at is because if you start running it at above 35 cycles minute, then you start getting a lot of environmental noise and you start picking up a lot of false positives. So that's a little thing about um, a PCR. I actually believe PCR is actually quite a good form of testing overall, but you need to be making sure that you're running it at the correct cycle rate. Well, it's approved for 40 cycles in terms of COVID. So as I said, that's a whole other discussion, isn't it? Yeah, that's a whole other discussion. And, you know, whether that should have been wound down is, is a whole other kettle of fish, I suppose. But yeah, PCR tests can be very useful if run at the correct rates and so on. Okay, so someone's done some tests, they found they've got mold in their home, but they can't afford to move. So what's next? How do you, I guess it's a broad question, because for example, the property I was in, to remedy that would probably involve knocking it down. And then there's another story, strangely enough, Melissa and I moved into a building in Bondi. We moved into it specifically because it was one of the newer buildings in Bondi and we were confident there was no mold. And there wasn't when we moved in. 
And then all of a sudden, I go away to actually up here where I am now in Noosa for a couple of weeks. I come back home, I open the door, Melissa greets me and I say to her, oh my gosh, there's mold. And this was after almost a year living there with no problems whatsoever. And what had happened was we'd had this extraordinary rain that was similar to you, like 10 days beating into Leo's window and it got in underneath the sliding door into the carpet, but you couldn't see it because it was underneath a piece of furniture. And so I went in there, I was using my nose (laughs) and I moved this piece of furniture and there it was, this patch of mold. Now, I kid you not, me moving that piece of furniture because it was sitting flush on the carpet just unleashed hell pretty much. By, I'm talking maybe four or five hours later, I was super anxious and feeling really depressed. And I said to Melissa, this is really bad, babe. Like, we've got to get out of here. We spent the night there. We all slept in our bedroom. We wore face masks to bed. Woke up the next morning and just got out of there. And it was so strong through the whole house by the time we left, like 24 hours. It felt like the whole thing had just spread viciously. And we arrive in Noosa. We call some specialists. We got two specialists to go in there. They both rated the apartment unlivable. And I'm talking like this had not been happening for more than a week, two weeks maybe. And it was a particularly aggressive type of mold. And they also said we have to basically throw away most of our stuff. So we spent thousands of dollars dry cleaning our clothes, threw away a lot of clothes. And we pretty much threw away every piece of furniture. Anything that was had a natural material had to go in the bin. Uh, we had a bunch of people come in, like six or seven people come in and wipe down the things we were keeping in an essential oil blend, on guard like a thieves blend. And Melissa and her dad were wearing full hazmat suits with $500 masks on each, like proper full, like serious units that we were advised were for mold. And they did it. They were in there that day just cleaning up stuff. I couldn't go in. I'm just too sensitive. By the afternoon, they both had bleeding noses, right? They were wearing masks, proper masks. The next day, her dad said he had the worst flu. And this was literally from a small patch in the carpet. So I'm not trying to freak people out, but I do want to also say, don't take it lightly. If you can smell something musty somewhere, like that musty smell is telling you something, right? Yes, absolutely. There's got to be some microbes that are creating that smell. That's the thing to understand. And so if there's microbes, there's moisture, generally speaking. A really good way of thinking about this is if you get a sponge and you don't dry it out totally, and let's say it's totally wet and it's sitting out on your counter, you come back the next day, it'll start getting a bit of microbial growth on it, right? And that's because that substance of that sponge is is a perfect material for bugs to grow on. So the same thing can be said of most of the materials modern houses are made of. You know, whether it be carpet, whether it be the chip, often carpets have chipboard underneath them. Well, that's perfect, soft wood. You know, microbes just love that. You know, you've got fibro cladding in, inside most houses. All of that's just really beautiful, soft food stuff for microbes. And so as soon as it gets moist, you're going to get microbes building up in it. So we generally say that when a house has been damp, the interior of, the, of that building has been exposed to water for 48 hours or more, it becomes a water damaged building. So a classic thing was, let's say you have some water come in on your carpet like you had in your example. If you don't dry that out really quickly, and basically that that dampness is able to stay there for 48 hours or more, that's going to become a mold problem, 100%. And as you say, for many people, that's going to be a, a big thorn in your side in terms of your health recovery. So it's, it's worth being aware of. the. And going back to your example, let's say someone's got a problem in their home and they're not able to afford to move. The first thing is just to educate yourself about it. 
Let's say you can't move straight away, no problem. Just find out what are some little things you can do. Now, one of the first things you could do is buy a air filter. And so I'm not saying that will totally get rid of the problem, but it will lessen it. It will lessen the problem if you can get a really good air filter. Now, there's, you know, usually you want an air filter that's a combination of a HEPA, H-E-P-A, and a PCO filter. So it's, I know this is a little bit technical, but there's two different technologies that air filters are often made of. And so if you can find one that contains those two, that's often a really good unit. And that's often a good temporizing measure while you're working out what to do. So the second thing is getting educating yourself, as I said, and the key is to get confident about it, not to get over, not to get stuck in overwhelm. It's really, really common if you're suffering from mold to get stuck in overwhelm, and and when you're overwhelmed, you often just freeze, and then when you freeze, you do nothing. The key thing is is to believe that you can deal with this. It may not be today, it may not be tomorrow that you fully deal with it, but you're going to move towards a plan that gets you away from that mold. So it may be that you have to stay there for two or three months or you have to, you know, do a little bit of camping in between the weekends or something like that. You know, camping is a great way of just getting out of your home and getting some fresh air. Some people can do that for a little while. Some some people have actually set up tent in their backyard and at least had the night out in their tent if you're in a house. <laughs> and, you know, that actually is not a bad little solution if you can at least do that and get away from it and you've got air filters in your home. So you've got to get creative and you've got to educate yourself. So I do recommend really finding some good sources of information which help you to, to understand this whole syndrome really well. You know, Neil Nathan's book is quite good, Toxic, which I think you mentioned, or, you know, doing doing a course like My Mold Almost Made Simple course it just means that someone's already broken down the info for you. When I learned about mold, I had to read like two or 3,000 page documents. And I do not wish that on anyone. <laughs> it was just so confusing and so meandering. And I had to just trawl through so much information to really get to what I wanted that I don't think that, I think life's too short for that for most people. You just got to get straight to the important information. And that's really why I've created an online course that just gets, basically says, this is what you need to know. Here it is. Boom, 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 boom. What is mold? What is inflammation? How do you get a good inspector? How do you know if your place is water damaged? How do you get away? It's got all those key bits of information in it. And so I think, you know, one of the things about that is you can it can take you from overwhelm to clarity and confidence. And, and that's a really key thing to move forward. So we'll link to your Mold Illness Made Simple. Yeah, that's it, moldillnessmadesimple.com. Yeah, so it's spelt the American way, M-O-L-D. So if you head to melissaambrosini.com forward slash 411, that will be all the show notes for this episode. We'll link to Sandeep's course. And in there as well will be the code, which will give you 10% off, which is Melissa. The code is Melissa. So make sure you definitely use that code to get 10% off. I've gone in and had a look at this course. It's really, really thorough. You've done such a great job with it. And it's interesting, you know, recently I've come across mold again two more times recently. One was my parents uh, in a rental. They had water penetration for more than 48 hours, as you said, it got into the carpet. And I walked in, got upstairs and I was like, well, I'm out of here. <laughs> like, And I literally haven't been able to visit them because I'm just too sensitive to that stuff now. And then also more recently, a friend of ours brought over a bassinet for us to use. We're really fortunate. We've got such amazing friends. We've, we actually really haven't bought a single thing because, you know, baby stuff, you can just circulate it in your community. She brought it around and 
she had been feeling really unwell. She had sort of sinusy and a cough and stuff that had been going for a while and her little baby had had a cough for ages and she wasn't much older than Bambi, so, you know, four or five months old. And mold was raised as a possible thing, potentially. So I smelt the bassinet and straight away I was like, there it is, there's the musty smell. So if a bassinet is in a house and it smells musty from the house, where is that coming from? It's not touching the ground. You know, it's like it's off the ground on a frame. So how is it getting into these soft furnishings, these materials? What's going on there? Oh, it's uh, in the air. What happens is, so let's say, go back to the example of the sponge. Let's say you've got a wet sponge in your wall. Let's say there's a roof tile leaking or something like that, and you've just got water going into your walls. Well, just like the wet sponge analogy, you've got lots of bugs in that wall. So there'll be bacteria, there'll be mold. Even there's some research saying there's actually parasites in there as well. And so what happens is they off-gas particles and gases. So there's something called VOCs or volatile organic compounds, and they just go into the air. And sometimes the mold spores themselves are in the air as well. And so anything that is porous, which basically means any substance in which air is able to get into the into the middle of that substance. So let's say a mattress or a upholstered couch or a bassinet, as you say, the mold will get right in there and the VOCs and so on will get right in there. And that's what causes the musty smell. Well, the musty smell is actually the VOCs. And therefore, you know, it's very hard to clean those items because they're basically, the mold has got right into them. And that's very different to having something non-porous. So a classic thing would be just like a, a metal plate or something, or a, something that's made of glass or hard plastic. Well, the mold can't get into the center of those. So that's, that's a lot easier to deal with because you can generally just get a HEPA vacuum and just vacuum that right off and then damp wipe it. And often you'll be good to go if you just got something in those categories like glass or plastic or metal. However, when you've got mattresses or fluffy toys or lounge suites, it's very hard to actually clean those. And in many cases, we actually recommend disposing of those if you've got a mold-infested house. Mm. So that, that can be very tricky, especially if you've got kids who are really attached to their fluffy toys or you've got books of sentimental value. We do have some little tricks that you can use for things like books, but in general, they're the things that, you know, if you just take them with you and you leave your house, the problem is just like, let's say you've got a bassinet that's full of mold, as you mentioned, and you take that through to your next house. Well, that's going to be then off-gassing. <laughs> and so you'll actually contaminate the next place as well. That's one, one of the biggest, you know, one of the mistakes that I made in recovering from mold, because even the first few months, I still didn't have much information. Even after I had contacted Richie Shoemaker and started researching this, I still didn't know that I couldn't take all my contaminated items with me. So to a certain degree, we did contaminate the next place and we had to do a lot of work to clean that next place up. So that's one of the little, you know, there's a lot of fine points like that. There's a lot of things that you don't need to do wrong the first time that I did wrong the first time. And I guess that's one of the reasons I've got this course is that people can learn from my experience of this whole thing and get it right the first time and save yourself a lot of uh, hardship. So I want to ask you a question about, actually, before I ask you this question, there was one device that we used. Uh, we didn't bring it up here with us to Queensland because, you know, our home has zero issues with moles, but it was an air oasis. Are you familiar with those? Yes. Yeah. yeah so that's a type of PCO filter. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, Dr. Shoemaker's done quite a bit of research with those. And I've actually got one at my house and I find them very useful. The only thing is for some people, there's certain models that can create a certain amount of ozone. Yes, I can smell it. Some people are a little bit sensitive to that. That's strong. Yeah, that's right. It's like um, you might wake up in the morning, it's almost like... 
you know, smells like after the rain. You know, like it's, you know, you get that after the rain smell. Right, yeah. Yeah, there's a, yeah, there's a distinctive smell there. Yeah, well, some people are, who are not sensitive to that at all, I don't think that it poses a health problem at those low levels, but some people who are mil- multiple chemical sensitive or whatever it might be, that ozone can be quite irritating and therefore you do have to be careful with getting an ozone producing model. Mm, I actually found that I quite liked the smell of it, so I, I didn't have that sensitivity luckily. But Yeah, I, I do too actually, quite like it. It sort of smells like nature to me, but so the Aeroasis is a fascinating one to look at. And if you're looking at those models, there's a model which was, it's silver in color and it has blue light coming out the top is the one we had. Actually, I can tell you which model it is. Yeah, X3000, I think that's called it, yeah. Something like that, yeah. So Yeah, the countertop X3000. Got it. Yeah, the G3 series, it says on their website. So that's another great thing to look at. One thing which comes up a lot is the connection between mold and candida. Candida being a fungus or a yeast. What is going on there? Because for me, that's been an issue. I've had to deal with that over the years in various ways. One of my practitioners, Stephen Cabral, has helped me quite a lot with just re-establishing a healthy microbiome. I mean, it started with getting that in check, that candida and that bacterial overgrowth. What is the connection between, say, environmental mold and yeast in the body? Okay, yeah. So just to um, clarify, fungi can have three different types. So you can have mold, you can have yeast, and you can have mushrooms. So yeast are the most simple type. They're single-celled fungus and candida albicans. Why candida? Yeah, candida is the, the most common type. Now, candida is normal in the body to some degree. There is a little bit in the gut and so on, just as part of the normal flora. Now, the, the classic explanation is that the candida goes out of balance when you're eating too much sugar or you've been exposed to antibiotics or you're just basically having an unhealthy diet in general. It's more diet-related. However, you can actually get yeast and and candida in a water-damaged building as well. So there can be an element that there's an interplay there, that if you've got a building that's got a mold problem, and we say mold, but really there's actually lots of organisms in a a water-damaged building, then it's going to be much harder to get to recover from your candida. So there's definitely a big interplay there. And so... I tend to say candida is more diet related, while mold in the body is more environmental related. It's more related to the external environment. However, there probably is a small dietary component there as well with mold in the body. I just think it's not to as big a degree as there is with candida and other yeasts. So if you've got mold in the body from your environment and you're still eating heaps of sugar and foods that contain mycotoxins and so on, I do believe that you'll probably make that worse. However, the number one contributor is actually mold growing in your external environment. So I hope that explains it. I think there's a, I think there's a bit of an interplay and candida is a bit more diet related while mold tends to be more environmental related. So let's take me, for example, I can't remember the actual species Oh, gosh. It was a long word. Do you remember the species I tested high for? If you throw me a few names, I'll remember. So one of them is called uh, Aspergillus. That's probably the most common species that grows ochratoxin. I think you had some ochratoxin in your... I had ochratoxin, yep. So that generally comes from Aspergillus. I can bring it up quickly, but there's also another really common one is mycophenolic acid, and that often comes from... That's the one. Aspergillus as well. That's the one. Oh, yeah, there it is. Yeah, penicillium and so on. And interestingly, mycophenolic acid is actually a drug that's used after organ transplant to keep the mm. immune system suppressed. Yes. So that just shows you how much these mold toxins can suppress the immune system. Gosh. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm grateful for that one. Not. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, yeah, it, it, it kind of can be quite scary when you find out you've got some something like that mycophenolic acid growing in your body. However, I guess the key is once you're away from the building, you can generally be pretty sure that it's not going to get worse. And as long as you've then got a solid treatment strategy, and that's where it's really important to have a good health practitioner who's conversant with mold-related illness, then you can be pretty sure that you're going to get on top of it and your body's going to be able to detox these things gradually. So that's that's the good news after all the little bits of scary info. <laughs> I'm curious to get your thoughts on something which I've been playing with lately. And I honestly feel like I'm in the best shape I've ever been in. And I'm I'm 42 and I generally have this sort of attitude in life that as I get older, I should feel better, not worse, because I'm, I'm getting wiser on the things which are more supportive for me. And something which I've been playing with, again, I heard a podcast with, gosh, can't think of his name, but he wrote a book called The Search for the Perfect Protein. And basically, he was a doctor who researched protein for 10 years and came back to the role of essential amino acid supplementation in the body. So there is a specific ratio of essential amino acids called the master amino pattern, which was on patent for a long time and it came off patent and people have been reproducing it. And he actually made one himself. It's called Perfect Aminos. The brand is Better Health. And so I've been using probably 30 to 40 of these a day, which is 30 to 40 grams of protein, right? And I'm training and I'm putting on muscle mass. I feel freaking amazing. And I don't feel like that mold stuff is a thing for me now. Do you think that that's just a general strengthening of the entire system? Like what, what's going on there, do you think? Well, I think the key in your case is that you're away from the source of the mold. Once you've done that, your body can deal with it to some degree. It just depends on, you know, whether your liver's functioning well and so on and your bowels are functioning well. And I think the fact that you're on the live food diet um, will help because generally speaking that, you know, you're eliminated a whole bunch of stuff that block up the liver and also the bowels. So you'll have a much better detoxification system than the average person. And also the lymphatics will be working a lot better. So I, I think that's probably played a big part. And then the role of protein is probably, yeah, you do need enough protein to be able to detoxify as well. That's something that's not really out there as much in the natural health world. But, you know, a lot of the, the compounds which help us to detoxify are actually amino acids. You know, things like glycine and glutathione, you know, glucuronide. That's actually the most important one with regard to mold. But, yeah, you do need to have enough protein in the body. And, you know, of course, excessive protein has its own problems as well. But I'm definitely a believer that you need to get enough. And, yeah, you can you can definitely do that on a plant-based diet, you know, by using, making sure you're getting certain things like spirulina and, and chlorella and chia seeds and so on. But if not, you know, using those kinds of supplements can be very beneficial as well. Yeah, it's been literally night and day for me. Okay. The difference before and after, I've been really, really surprised. But I've, you know, I've been training as well. My body's wanting to use up those amino acids for, for new tissue and stuff. So, you know, I think, I think anyone can just take them, I'm sure, and improve their health to a, to a degree. But I think if you are exercising and doing things to support your body, it's great. I, I want to talk to you about living foods. Before I do, I had this thought come to mind before that you might be the right person to ask this, but we have this thing in our kitchen, right? Where we never can find like the perfect sponge <laughs> or cloth for the kitchen because they always seem to stink, right? Right. And obviously, there might, you, you got to, is there like a mold, special mold resistant like kitchen cloth or something? Because I reckon that's like a thing. They, they, those things are always wet. Yeah, that's true. That's a great question. And actually, it could be a, a really good uh, invention for someone. 
But I've generally found <laughs> I've generally found that the Enyo Enyo cleaning products from from Sweden are really good, just with regard to the quality of the products and the microfiber and so on. And I suspect the microfiber material is probably more mold resistant. But I haven't looked into this in a lot of detail. It could be a good one to follow up on. Yeah, I, I will actually. I want to talk to you about living foods because you put me on to Dr. Gabriel Cousins. Now he has been on this show. Fantastic episode. We'll link to it in the show notes. It's such an amazing, amazing man. And I really became somewhat obsessed with his work. Like I really, I really enjoyed his work and his book, Conscious Eating, I just thought was, was rather brilliant, actually, like mind-blowing. It's the Bible of vegetarianism. Yeah, it's, it's extraordinary. And, and it really brought a understanding, but a passion for food that is alive, still living foods, full of biophotons, right? And We've been very much living that way. The juice that we do in the morning is part of that. We have, always have a salad at lunch. But we do have cooked foods still, of course. Like It's hard to just be totally raw, but we've brought more and more living foods in. I'm assuming that mold for me, when I think of mold, it represents death, really. It's about breaking things down, decay. Living foods is about life. Is that why you use them? It's bringing life force back in, or is there something else happening that's so effective and why you prescribe? You actually prescribe Gabriel Cousins' diet, don't you, to your patients, and you're certified by Gabriel Cousins. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, particularly people who are already on a plant-based diet, I do. And I think there's a number of different reasons that you can advocate for a, a more live food diet. And one of them is the, the word you've already used, the biophoton field. And there's a lot of research from Germany, particularly from Fritz Albert Popp, where he actually equated the health of, of a human being with the health of the biophoton field. Now, he definitely found that particularly wild-crafted live organic foods had the highest biophoton energy. So therefore, they do contribute more to the biophoton field. And so some people say that matter is just a condensation of the biophoton field. So the strength of your, your physical body is dependent on the field around it. And one of the things about mold is it probably creates a lot of chaos in the field. So live foods create a lot of coherence in the field. There's also the question as to whether the person's energy body can handle that yet. And I think that's why many of the traditional systems have kind of said, oh, just go for cooked food. Raw food's just too hard. It's almost like they've had that kind of opinion. And I think the reason is it, it takes time and adjustment for the body to be able to start working on a more subtle energetic level. And so often people take a little bit of time to transition from a, a more standard Australian or American diet over to a live foods diet. But definitely biophotons are one of the reasons that it, that it appears to be very beneficial. Another theory has been around enzymes. So enzymes are small proteins, which are the catalysts of biological reactions. And generally, enzymes are broken down with cooking. So clearly, live foods contain a lot more enzymes. And there is research out there that suggests they are actually absorbed into the body via the, the payers patches of the small intestine. And so I think there was a researcher called Howell who also looked at the enzyme reserve of the body and related the general degeneration of aging towards depletion of enzymes. So that's another really strong reason for live foods. And then there's just the nutritional value of you know, organic live foods tends to be higher. Now, I know the research hasn't been 100% consistent on this, but generally speaking, you know, the, the nutrition that's present in live foods is, is the most robust. 
it's just a question of then really working on your digestion so that you're able to break down live foods, break down all those cell bonds that are present in between the food cells and and be able to actually access the, the goodness that's in live foods. So I think that is a really important thing as well. It's not just about, oh, I'm going to eat some live foods, I'm done. It's about making sure that you're able to assimilate them really well as well. That's so important because I know early on I, I just couldn't handle raw foods. I just couldn't do it, you know, early, very early in the journey. And now I look at raw foods and I just, my, I salivate, like my body wants raw foods and, you know, we do sprouting in our house. So we sprout. I used to do a lot of different sprouts. Now I just focus on sprouting for a protein source. So I sprout French lentils, green lentils, chickpeas, mung beans, just a whole bunch of different things. And it's so easy to do. Like every day I'll just take a whole bunch of sprouts that are finished, plonk it in our salad, stir it up, and then I'll just re-soak some more and that'll become, you know, two days. It's like, it's very, very quick. I'll sprout quinoa, buckwheat, all sorts of things. And I think that is a really fun way to get living foods into your diet because you really, I don't know, it's kind of exciting to grow your own food and you feel like it's even more precious, more sacred. But you're right. I've spoken to a lot of practitioners who work in this field. And if you put someone on a standard American diet onto a raw vegan diet, you're going to make them sick, most likely, because they're going to start detoxing in a rate of knots that just can't handle. The body's not ready for it. No, that's right. So it's, uh, you know, I think Gabriel Cousins used to say it's like, it's jet fuel. You have to learn how to run a jet or something like that before you can handle it. I, I kind of get what he means by that. It's a total fuel change. And so, you know, it's also about living a holistic lifestyle. You have to be following a, a lifestyle that supports that. You can't be just having massive amounts of stress and massive aggravation in your life and everything. That's not really consistent with the whole energy of live foods. It needs to be a really holistic approach to your life, doing what you love and having harmonious relationships around you. I think that's also part of it that doesn't get spoken of very often. Yeah, well said. That's beautiful. I have a quick question which came from a very dear friend of mine. So I'm asking this <laughs> somewhat as a favor, but she was just curious if you do have bacterial overgrowth or candida, does that affect you during pregnancy and the health of the baby? Are you familiar with that at all? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, look, it can for sure. Especially, I mean, if you've got vaginal candidiasis, then you know that will definitely get transferred to the baby through the you know the birthing process, most definitely. But there's a lot of communication that takes place between the mother and child. So I think most likely there'll be some effect. But if you basically go on a, a good protocol and deal with that, generally speaking, it's not going to have a long-term adverse effect. And, you know, sometimes you may have to do a little bit of work on the baby's biome and using baby biotics and things like that. However, I don't think, you know, you need to stress out about the fact that you've damaged your baby for life or anything like that. But there just can be a little bit of transfer. And it just, you know, you just have to be aware of it, that there may just need to be a little bit of work on your baby to restore their microbiome. So I know you have patients you're currently in your office, so I'm conscious of your time, but I want to do some rapid fire and I know you don't have too long. So let's do like, and when I do rapid fire, usually it goes for like half an hour. So let's, let's do like a five minute rapid fire. What is bringing you the most joy right now, Sandy? Great question. Actually for me, and I know you're a musician, actually playing and writing music is very, very dear for me. And I th think I mentioned this to you when you were in the office, that it, that's really something that I'd like to bring out into my life a lot more and has been something I've always had to put in the back burner with my medical career. So that's something that I really, really enjoy. Getting out into nature, particularly swimming in cold streams is a very uh, joy-inducing thing for me. And meditating, getting into a deep meditation is very joyful as well. Yeah. You're a man speaking like, that's all the stuff that I love. That sounds amazing. 
What's one thing you're working on within yourself that you would like to improve within yourself at the moment? Uh, it's just a relational patterns are probably a big thing and just how I communicate when I have certain triggers that are activated and just trying to get more conscious of my triggers, I suppose. So when someone, you know, there's certain little little things that someone can say to me that just basically put off a trigger. And it's so easy to get into that sort of unconscious pattern of just reacting rather than being conscious of that trigger and then still trying to come from a place of love. So that's definitely a work in progress for me. Mm. Have I triggered you today, Sandy? Not yet. (laughs) (laughs) You've got, what, three more minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me about your morning routine in in 20 seconds or less. What do you do in the morning? My morning routine is getting up and meditating. Uh, at the moment, it's there also checking Telegram, which is a, a messaging app, and then learning as much as I can about what's going on in the world. Mm-hmm. That's only been something in the last six to 12 months that I've added in. That was something I didn't like to do previously. And then yoga, and then having a, a fresh vegetable juice and having breakfast and, and getting ready for work. I also do an Ayurvedic massage in there, which is I'm meaning an oil massage where I just apply oil to my skin. Yeah, we're big fans of Abhyanga. Let's pretend you have a magic wand. You can put one book in the curriculum in every single high school around the world. What book do you choose? Great question. Have not thought about it. Let's go with conscious eating. I think that would be, I think starting with food is a really good place for a lot of people. And just, you know, anything that really brings awareness into daily life habits and how you can improve those would be really great. What's one thing we can do for our health? So we've talked about a heap today. We've talked a lot about juicing and raw foods and then mold. Let's go a totally different direction and say just thinking about what emotional trauma you have from the past and whether you've addressed that. That's probably a bit more of a left field one, but I would say that's another one that doesn't get talked about a lot and I found to be very, very valuable. What's the one most important thing we can do for our wealth? For your wealth, uh, be clear on what you want and what your gift is for the world. Absolutely. Once you're 100% in your gift and you know what you're contributing to the world, once you're really offering value, then wealth tends to follow that. And you have to have a good, a good strategy to go along with it. But that, I think that's the most important thing. Well said. And the last question, what's the one most important thing we can do for our love? I would say it goes back to what I was talking about before. Again, it's being aware of your triggers. It's very easy when you're in a kind of like in a honeymoon stage. I think everyone does that well. <laughs> but the problem is when you're, you're in a stage where triggers are coming up or, you know, you're feeling a bit tired or you're feeling a bit scratchy, how you can just bring more consciousness into each moment so that let's say there's a little comment or there's a little situation which tends to trigger you. How can I be more aware and more conscious in this moment? And how can I bring more love into that moment? And just practicing that as a daily thing. And you're going to get it wrong sometimes. I definitely do all the time, but you keep working at it. You journal away and you keep on, keep on trying. Sandy, it's been amazing having you. I know that people are going to listen to this and go, this is a doctor who's speaking my freaking language. How do I get to work with this dude? What is the process? Do you have to come into your office? Can you do online? How do you operate? Yeah, we can do both now. We can do online and physical. I'm still a big fan of physical if at all possible and, and, you know, lockdown and so on, you know, allowing. And so you can get in touch with us via our number 0753133577 in Australia, obviously, or check out our website, lotusholisticmedicine.com.au. There's been so much in this and please go and check out the show notes at melissamrosini.com forward slash 411 and definitely check out Sandeep's program will give you the link to that and the code is melissa 
Sandeep, thank you so much for joining us. That was like a power-packed hour and 10 minutes. Super grateful for your time. And again, thank you for the support that you've given me as well. Very welcome, Nick. Great to talk to you today. And thanks for the excellent interview. Thanks, Sandeep. Don't forget to head to comparisonitis.com to get your copy of my latest book and all the free goodies that go with it. I cannot wait for you to read it and to hear what you think. Yes, guys. Yes, 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 yes. That was so good. So juicy, full of gold. Loved it. And what a beautiful man. What a beautiful, transparent, humble, honest man. And isn't it amazing to have doctors, GPs of that level of consciousness. And that's not a slur on other GPs. It's just that it's so nice to talk to people in that position who are so aware of the impact they're having on the world. And through some misfortune, of course, Sandeep found himself becoming a specialist in mold, but has now helped thousands and thousands of people. So if you are one of those people who has been struggling with mold or any sort of mystery illness, then perhaps this could be the missing link. And that was the hope for this episode, was to educate you on what some of those symptoms are, some of the mold-related illnesses, how they look, how they come on, how it can happen in your home. And I found the whole thing about musty smells really interesting, because I've always been curious about musty smells. If you smell something musty, is it just a bad smell, or is it mold-infested? And we'll now know that it's mold-infested, so anything musty, guys, get that stuff out or get it treated. So... I really hope you enjoyed today's episode. You would have heard from my story just how much this can impact you. I mean, it is serious stuff, guys, because you'd think, well, hang on, would Mother Nature make something like this that could get into our bodies and we couldn't get out very easily? Well, we just happen to live in many environments that just aren't natural, that wouldn't occur in nature, and hence we create unnatural situations. And that allows things to proliferate like black mold. So, far out. It's huge. It's huge, guys. I really hope you love this. Please make sure you hit the subscribe button because as I've been saying the past few weeks, Apple did have a bit of a bug in their app and it did lose some subscribers. So please make sure you resubscribe. Otherwise, you won't see these episodes popping up in your feed. Make sure you go and follow at Melissa Ambassini on Instagram and at I am Nick Broadhurst because we actually do giveaways for pretty much every single episode. Did you know that? I hope you did. And we do those giveaways on Instagram at Melissa Ambassini. So make sure you go and follow her and get involved in some of these epic giveaways we do for each episode. And don't forget today to look up, see the beauty around you, see the beauty within you. Be gentle with yourself, be kind to yourself, be kind to others, be love to yourself and be love to others. And above all, have a beautiful day. I love you heaps. Mwah.